Luke chapter 19. The first ten verses of this chapter tell us of a short little man named Zacchaeus. And we're not going to look at his story right now, but we want to see the tenth verse as Jesus summarizes his salvation of a little publican named Zacchaeus. Luke 19 and verse 10 tell us this fact of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Amen. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of Man, and He came into this world to seek, that is to find them, and to save, that is to deliver them, the lost. Now, brethren, if it's a person and you're lost, you're lost in the sense of this world, you're lost in the sense of the favor of God, you're a loser. So this morning I want to preach to you that Jesus loves losers. And I hope that you'll find some comfort in it because this is the message of the gospel. And if you'll come to Jesus as a loser, you're going to be the winner. Because he's going to make you a winner, for he is the winner of heaven and earth. The Lord of glory. Last Lord's Day, we looked at growing up in Christ and finding Christian maturity by being the men and the women that we ought to be for his sake. When we look at our lives, though, the devil is going to throw fiery darts at us to discourage us from being all that we should be in living for Jesus Christ. The devil will throw a number of fiery darts, and this morning's sermon is to quench them for you to hear it, believe it, remember it, and use it as your shield of faith to quench those fiery darts. You better believe what I'm telling you this morning. If you don't believe it, you're giving the evidence that eternal fire has been fueled for you because the unbelieving and the fearful will be in the lake of fire. This is a message of peace. There is no reason why anyone should ever reject it except the depravity of their own hearts. No one should reject it. If you do not believe you are fully forgiven your sins and your failures, you are going to be defeated and hopeless. And once the devil can get you to feeling hopeless about yourself, he has you right where he wants you. You have bowed to the devil himself and believed his lie. We don't need to go back to the Garden of Eden. It happens every day. We sin, we fail, you, com- you measure yourself by the wrong standard, and you find yourself coming up short, and the devil throws that fiery dart, you're nothing. You're a loser. He isn't going to forgive your sins again. You've sinned this one a number of times. And he throws that fiery dart, and you better hold up a shield of faith where Jesus Christ came for losers. You better hold up the shield of faith that we just sang, that you're not to be thinking of getting better. You're not to be thinking of lingering until you're better. You should come now and come to him as a loser. This is what the devil will do to you. He wants to defeat you so that you will not live with the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. You can live victoriously, and I can, but we do it by faith. And that faith is Jesus Christ loves me as a sinner, and he has forgiven me all my sins, and he takes me as I am, and he doesn't want me better. He wants to take me poor and naked, hopeless, bruised, and mangled. Because it gives him all the glory. He 
saved us for his trophies of grace. A trophy of grace is a great sinner saved by great grace, and that is a great trophy of grace. So the greater sinner you are, the greater grace God has bestowed, and you can come more freely than anyone because Jesus came for losers. The devil's going to tell you that you can't really believe that you're forgiven and fully saved. He can't forgive you. Look at you. You keep sinning the same sin. How can he forgive that? What kind of a saved person are you? You'll lose your Christian joy and your Christian peace. And you know, that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what we show the world. And the world says that they want to know the reason of the hope that is within us. But you'll lose that if you listen to any of those darts from Satan. If you wallow in your imperfection, if you wallow in your sins, you'll never live victoriously by grace. You are an unbeliever. It's not that you're a sinner. It's not that you have some special thoughts about yourself of being a great sinner. You are not a believer. Jesus said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. So there is no reason for us to go through the thought process that I'm too lost for him. It is pride that keeps you from believing on him because you want to make yourself better before you come to him. If you had true humility, you would come as you are, naked and hopeless, and he receives all those that come that way. The devil's going to tell you that you better wait until you're ready. You need a few weeks of good behavior. Then Jesus will accept you. Oh, no. He doesn't want good behavior on the front end. He wants it on the back end after he's forgiven you. Come to him without any good behavior, and he'll save you by comforting your soul and giving you the presence of his spirit. If you try to measure yourself by any of this world's standards of measurement, you lose. He doesn't care about the measurements of this world. He only cares about his own, and he's provided the rule, and he's filled the measure himself. Come to him only as you are as a sinner. Flee to him this morning. Every one of you that believe this morning, in your hearts, while I preach, run to the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll receive you while I'm speaking and embrace you in his arms because he's looking for sinners that will flee to him. You can believe me today and you can rejoice in the Spirit of God. Or you can be frustrated and hopeless and go to hell an unbeliever. I'm not talking about how you can get yourself in the book of life. But I'm telling you that if you can't humble yourself before this Savior and come as a little child, there is no evidence that you're one of His. Because He must get all the glory, which I shall establish in just one moment. Now I want to make this very certain to all of you. There is no virtue in poverty. Simply considered by itself. So when Jesus came for the poor... There's no virtue in being poor just for the sake of being poor. Now, if you've made yourself poor for the kingdom of heaven's sake, like the Apostle Paul did, poor is a virtue. Or like Jesus our Lord did, poor is a virtue. But some will take a message like this and think that poverty and being a loser is a virtuous act. And even in the Bible, Paul had to address this, but that is not the case. There is no virtue in poverty simply considered by itself. If we make ourselves poor... For the kingdom of heaven's sake, that is good. And there's no virtue in failure. So don't leave this message thinking, well, I'm a loser every day when it comes to spiritual things. The Lord must love me a lot. Oh, no. Once he saves us as a loser, 
He wants to make us victors in Him because He's given us the strength to do that. So we don't continue losing by choice. But when we do lose, we know there's a Savior willing to receive us again and again and again and again. But we don't intend to do that. To him. That's what I'm saying. Don't presume on this. Yeah. The Apostle Paul knew that in Romans chapter 6, he said, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? There's the answer to that. Now, this is simple this morning. How much do you believe and how much do you know about Jesus of Nazareth? Let's establish the doctrine that Jesus loves losers. Then we'll look at examples. Let's look at the doctrine of it. Come to Isaiah 55, and let's look at the Word of God and what it has to say about this doctrine that Jesus loves losers. I'm defining a loser today as a sinner, and a sinner that knows he's a sinner, and a sinner that knows he's a horrible sinner, and a sinner that continues to sin and knows he's a sinner. And he can come to Jesus Christ and find forgiveness because Jesus loves losers. In Isaiah 55 and verse 6, we read these words. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. There's a loser. A wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the doctrine. God's ways are not our ways. We don't like losers. We reject losers. You cross us enough times, and we will never talk to you again. But that is not the way God operates. That's what it means in verses 8 and 9 when it says, My ways and my thoughts are not your ways and thoughts. Look at the context, brethren. The ways and thoughts that are not comparable or comparable to men are the way that we treat losers, the way that we treat sinners who offend us. By nature, we are very impatient. We are not long-suffering. We are very vengeful. His ways are not our ways. We can sin and come to him again because notice what it says. It says, let him return unto the Lord. Now, how can you return unto the Lord unless you were already there once? Right. You've gone astray and you've come back. Right. It's talking about returning. You know, sometimes people will not let us return. You did that to me. I'm never going to be with you again. You're not my friend anymore. I don't want anything to do with you after what you did. Those are our ways and our thoughts, but they're not his, brethren. Jesus loves losers. Those who intended to follow him, then they fell away. Then they come back. He loves them. This is the doctrine of the word of God, Isaiah 55. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Oh, what a good chapter we have here. And what a good little section of verses to prove our point and establish the doctrine that God has chosen the losers of this world to be his elect because he gets the greater glory. 
and he wants to shut the mouths of those who think they're something by choosing those who are nothing, in fact. 1 Corinthians 1 and 26. He's writing, Paul is writing to a whole church by the inspiration of God. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. He is telling this church to look around. He says, see, you see your calling. You see what kind of people God calls. And this morning we can look around, whether you do use your eyes or not, or just your, your minds right now, you can look around and it's obvious that not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise men are called. I'm sorry if that humbles anyone here, but that's a true fact. Amen. This is not where the socialites gather in Greenville, South Carolina. We wouldn't want them anyway, but they don't gather here. We would only want them if they were to come as one of us, naked, poor, and helpless, needing a Savior. Verse 27, in contrast, he says, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God, in his choice of the names that he put in the book of life, he carefully selected them. He did. He discriminated against the wise. He discriminated against the mighty. He discriminated against the noble to choose the foolish, the poor, the weak, and the base, and those things that are despised. He chose people that are really nothing. And if you're nothing, what are you? You're a loser. But to God, you're you're His child. And so He has chosen things of this world that are nothing, made them His children to bring to naught things that are. The people of this world that think they are something special, do you know how much of that specialness they're going to bring with them when they stand before the judgment seat of the living God? Nada. Nothing. And do you know what we're going to be there as? His brothers. It's going to be family. We're not just going to be acquaintances. We'll be family, the children of God. He will take all of us in his loving arms and look at his father and say, here's our family, father. I have not lost a single one of them. Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. That's the way it's going to be. And the rest will be tossed out of his sight forever and ever. And he will say to them, I never knew you. And he will love us. And he will say, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. What a difference is going to be made. But I want you to see that God saves losers. Jesus came for losers. Jesus loves losers. So when you feel like you're a miserable failure, ah, you're in good condition if you'll flee to the rock of our salvation. But if you wallow in that, you are an unbeliever and you are full of pride. People who are wallowing in their sins, do you know what they will say? They will describe it as humility. It's not. It's pride. They do not want to go to Jesus Christ in that condition. They want to be better so that they can take something to him. We have to come at his feet like the woman that washed them with the tears of her eyes and kissed them with her mouth and dried them with the hairs of her head at his feet in total humility. That is humility. Coming to Jesus Christ, staying back until you're better, that is pride. 
Let's define our terms correctly and understand what true pride is. True humility is knowing you're rotten and going to Christ as rotten, a loser. And here it is. The Bible tells us that this is the way that God has chosen us. He did not choose the wise, the mighty, the noble. He chose the foolish, the poor, the despised. And why did he do it? Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Amen. The lower he dips into humanity to save, the greater his glory. If he chose the noble ones of this world, they would take some for themselves, and he wouldn't get it all. But reaching down all the way, past the angels, didn't he? Yep. Did he go past the angels? He went past the angels, and he went past all the noble men on earth, except for a few. It says not many. There were a few exceptions. And he comes all the way down to us, and he saves us. Jesus loves losers. Come over to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Oh, when you go to Jesus Christ, you don't go with anything. Don't go with promises of how much better you're going to be. Right. Don't go to him. If he'll give you another chance, you'll be better for him. Go to him as you are. Helpless. A sinner and beg for his mercy and grace, and he'll save you again and again, and give his mercy and peace into your heart. James chapter 2, the apostle would write to these brethren and say, the first verse, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respective persons. Now, this is a hard verse for some to understand, but the word with here means along with, in addition to. He's telling these saints, don't have the faith or the gospel or the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't hold to his gospel and, in addition to that, hold to the respect of persons because they're contradictory to each other. Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ and respect persons. Don't do the two of them. They don't go together. Don't respect persons. He's going to explain what he means. Verse 2, For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place. And say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? It's a question. It's a rhetorical question. Hasn't God chosen the poor of this world and made them rich in faith? Yes, he has. And he goes on to say, it's the rich that haul you before the judgment seats and beat you for your faith. Why are you giving them special attention? God has chosen the poor of this world. And my purpose this morning is not to give you a lecture on election. My purpose this morning is to comfort you on how to go to Jesus Christ. And that's to go as a loser. And that's to go just laying yourself before him and begging for his forgiveness and thanking him for his forgiveness and kissing his feet. He'll raise you up because if you humble yourself, he will lift you up and exalt you. But if we go to him on our own terms or on some terms we think he has devised, he will reject us. So we go as the poor and I want to establish the doctrine of it. Look at Matthew 11. Matthew 11. 
Matthew 11 and verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. The gospel was hidden from what kind of people? The wise and the prudent. And the gospel is revealed to what kind of people? Babes. When it comes to the educational learning of this world, they are babes. And the Lord Jesus Christ thanks His Father in heaven for making this kind of a choice. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Let's come down to verse 28. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What kind of people? Laborers. If you're a laborer, a day laborer, don't anyone be offended. You're a loser. Winners own day laborers. Are you speaking economically? If you're a day laborer, you're a loser. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I mean, you're really oppressed. You sound like a slave. You sound like an Israelite in Egypt building Pharaoh's tombs. Come unto me. But this is not speaking about economic terms. This is speaking about the condition of your soul. You're laboring and are heavy laden with the guilt and trouble of your sins. And Jesus says, I will give you rest. He's looking for losers. Matthew 11 and verse 28. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. I am meek and lowly. Come to me the same way. Come naked. Come helpless and poor. And I'll give you rest for your souls. Throughout the Bible. I'm establishing the doctrine of it. The Bible's filled with it. Look at Luke 4. Luke 4. Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth where he had been brought up. He goes into the synagogue as his custom was. There was delivered to him the book of Isaiah. He opened the book. He found Isaiah 61. And he read. I wish I could have been there, but since I can't be, just reading this passage is one of my favorite places in the Bible because it describes such a wonderful reading of Scripture, explanation of it, and then sitting down more graciously than any man that ever walked this earth. He reads in Isaiah 61, and here it is, Luke 4:18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And they all wondered at the gracious words that came from his lips. But what I want you to see We're establishing the doctrine that Jesus came for losers. Do you see how he described them in Luke 4.18? As they're described in Isaiah 61 and 1. They're described here as the poor. Follow with me through Luke 4.18. 
the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the blind, and the bruised. Now, does that sound like a loser to you? These are sorely troubled people. And these are not all physical maladies. These are spiritual maladies as well. Poor, brokenhearted, captive, blind, and bruised. And he says, I am come to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, do you know what that means? That I am come to accept those kind of people. The acceptable year of the Lord. They can come and be accepted because the ultimate final sacrifice is about to be offered in myself. The acceptable year of the Lord hadn't been here yet. Because all they had were animals to offer as sacrifices, which could never make a man acceptable before God. But the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was here. Glorious. Jesus loves losers. And it tells us that. Look at Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We haven't even come to the examples yet. We're looking at establishing the doctrine. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. And after these things he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. What's the other name of this man, Levi? Matthew. He's a publican. The Jews hated the publicans, and for good, for good reason, from a natural standpoint. They were traitors. They were the, in the employ of Rome, collecting taxes from the Israelites to give to a foreign nation. They hated the publicans. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. Jesus is in a house full of publicans. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Those religious people wouldn't have anything to do with publicans or sinners. And Jesus answering said unto them, verse 31, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus didn't come for those that think they're doing well. Jesus didn't come for those that think they are well or that are healthy. He came for those that are sick and poor, bruised and mangled, and he will heal them. He didn't come for these self-righteous Pharisees and scribes who were looking down on these publicans and sinners. He came for the publicans and sinners, and they heard him gladly, the Bible tells us. And they entered into the kingdom of heaven being baptized with the baptism of John, while the Pharisees and the scribes would not. But they rejected the counsel of God against themselves. Don't let anyone this morning reject the counsel of God against yourself. Flee to Jesus Christ and find in Him a refuge for your soul. He loves sinners. He came for losers, as Luke 5 teaches us. Look at Luke 15. Luke 15, an entire chapter dedicated to the fact that there is a great contrast, and I hope that some of you read this chapter, between the self-righteous and sinners. Look at the first two verses, and it will tell you how to understand the whole chapter. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. What kind of people wanted to hear Jesus? Publicans and sinners. Can you... Is it hard for you to get in that category? It's not hard, is it, to qualify for the audience of Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured. 
saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, the last plural noun we have, which is verse 2, saying. Luke 15 is addressed to Pharisees, those people who look down on sinners. So that when we read about a hundred sheep, and the shepherd leaves ninety and nine in the wilderness and goes and chases down one. And Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees. He is saying, if you lost one sheep, you would leave the ninety and nine and go get the one, and you would come back and you would celebrate and call your friends because you had found the one sheep that was lost. The one is more important than the ninety and nine. To you, Pharisees, you would do it to sheep, and I do it to men. Now, there is no such thing as a righteous man. This is self-righteousness. The ninety and nine are self-righteous Pharisees, and there's one lost sinner. It's not that there's one sinner in a congregation and ninety-nine perfect saints. Find me the church. That sounds like few problems there if there's only one sinner and ninety-nine righteous saints. This is not comparing the righteous to sinners, but the self-righteous to sinners. A woman has ten coins. She loses one. She puts the nine down and she scurries. She goes around that house looking in every nook and cranny to find that one lost coin. That one lost coin is a sinner. The nine coins are self-righteous ones. The one is more important than the nine who don't think they need any help. Jesus, as a physician, came to heal those that were sick. Those are the sinners. Those that are self-righteous and think they're well, they don't need a Savior. Then we come to the prodigal. The whole story of the prodigal is not about the prodigal. It is not about the prodigal. It's not about the father receiving the prodigal. Luke 15 is given about that older brother because the older brother is like the Pharisees. He came in from the field and heard the big celebration, heard that the robe had been pulled out for his brother, a ring had been given to him, and a big feast was prepared. I've been here all these years serving faithfully, and I've never had a feast for me. There's a self-righteous man only thinking of himself instead of a sinner where there ought to be celebration because he's been recovered from his sin. That is the lesson of Luke 15. And so the lesson is for us, is there a loser in Luke 15? Yeah, there's a lost sheep. If something is lost, it's a loser, wouldn't you say? Is a coin lost? It's a loser. And was the prodigal a loser? He sure was. I would say somebody that spent all his money and ended up looking lustingly after the feed that was being given to the pigs is a loser. And that's the one that was celebrated. And that Jesus said the angels in heaven celebrate over one sinner that repents more than 99 self-righteous men who don't need any because the angels in heaven are celebrating every one of God's elect that are being brought in that know their sinfulness. First Timothy chapter one, first Timothy chapter one. The doctrine that Jesus loves losers. Now there is one loser in the New Testament greater than them all. And we're going after him right now. And Jesus Christ saved him for only one purpose. Not because he felt sorry for this loser, but because he needed to find the greatest loser that there was in the New Testament in order for him to show how great he was for you and me to know that Jesus saved the greatest loser he can certainly save us. He can certainly forgive us if he can forgive this one. Who am I talking about? 
Saul of Tarsus, or Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Follow with me with these words. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy. Follow. He's going to explain why he was saved. Why God reached down into Israel and saved Saul of Tarsus. For this cause I obtained mercy. That in me first, because I am the greatest of sinners in the New Testament. I am the chief of sinners. This first is I am the foremost sinner that he saved. That in me first, it's not because he was saved first. I'm trying to help you out before I read through this verse. It's not because he was saved first. He wasn't saved first. He was saved after a good number of thousands of Israelites were saved. This first here is his rank as a sinner. It's not his priority in the order of his conversion. It's his rank. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. He is telling you, and he's telling me, that Jesus Christ saved me as a pattern and example for you and for me to know that if he could save Paul, if he could forgive Paul, if he could be long-suffering to Paul, he can surely save, forgive, and be long-suffering to us because he was the worst. And God saved him for the very purpose of having a pattern for us that believe on Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven enormous sins because Paul, who was greater as a sinner than we, was forgiven by Jesus Christ. And Paul says this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came in to save losers. Now, Paul gets excited when he starts talking about what Jesus Christ did for him, and so we've got to read the 17th verse and get the amen there before we can go on with his personal letter to Timothy. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 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 I want you to know that 1 Timothy chapter 1 is not men sitting down trying to write big flowery words for some formal ceremony in a church service. This is the middle of a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. And when he starts talking about what God had done for him and what Jesus Christ had forgiven him of as a sinner, he just has to burst forth in verse 17, now unto the King Eternal. And he praises him and blesses him. And then says, Amen. And goes on for a couple more chapters before he loses it again in chapter 6. Before he can get to the end. I, I like the way Paul writes. Amen. Paul is an example for, for the rest of us to say, what did Paul do? Now he said he was a blasphemer. He blasphemed God? Hmm. I doubt if many of you in here have blasphemed God that many times, but he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. When was the last time you persecuted other Christians and threw them in jail? An injurious, 
When was the last time you hurt other Christians? And if you go read the rest of the New Testament, when was the last time you killed a Christian because he was a Christian? That in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering. You know why he was saved? Paul wasn't saved for Paul. Paul was saved for Jesus Christ to show how long-suffering he was for you to lay hold of that for your faith, for them that would believe on him hereafter. God does not save sinners because he feels sorry for them. God saves sinners to display his perfect, glorious forgiveness and mercy that is found in the most wise plan of salvation that could ever be conceived through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why he saves. And he saved Paul in picking Paul. He said, I've got to find the worst one so that I can demonstrate to every other New Testament believer that believes on me that they are not going to sin to where I can't forgive them because of my example that I'm going to make in Saul of Tarsus. Amen. Amen. Let's turn to Luke 23. Hold with me for a little while. And let's look at a few examples. That's the doctrine. I've just given you a number of verses showing you that the doctrine, Jesus Christ came into this world to save those who are sinners and who know they are sinners and who are horrible sinners because that's how he gets his glory. He did not choose the pretty people, did he? He did not choose the religious people, did he? He chose sinners. Very few Pharisees, very few scribes, Very few Sadducees, many harlots, many publicans. There's a lesson for us at the end. Luke 23, what do we have here? We have a loser. We find this loser in verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. We have two thieves crucified beside the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's hill. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today, shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now this man was a loser. What had he ever done for the Lord? What kind of a life did he have to claim? Anybody in here think you're worse than this thief? What did he have? Why is he in the Bible? Why did God save him? Same reason we just read in 1 Timothy 1. Same reason as 1 Corinthians 1. He doesn't choose the noble, the wise, and the mighty. He chooses sinners. And here's this thief. He was cursing Jesus Christ a few hours earlier or minutes earlier. And now he's defending Jesus Christ against the other thief and and ascribing innocence to Jesus Christ. What did he have to offer? How long was his prayer? Did he pray through? Did he spend weeks at it? One little sentence. Lord, remember me. Hopeless, helpless, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And I want to, that's all it takes. If you go with much more than that, even in the way of words, do you know how you're going? You're going with your eloquence. 
Ah, sinner, hear me. Don't go with your eloquence. Don't go with all your reasoning. Go with a begging for mercy. Remember the one that went down to his house justified? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now that's not very eloquent. But for a soul that's been touched by grace, it's very eloquent. Because only a soul that's been touched by grace can ever choke those words out and mean them. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Verily, what does that word mean? Of a truth, this is true indeed. Verily, I say unto thee. And he didn't use the word you. You as a plural pronoun would have referred to anyone or everyone around the cross. He used a singular pronoun referring to one person. Verily, I say unto thee, thou shalt be with me today in paradise. Jesus loves losers. Nothing to offer, and his prayer was so short, but he cast himself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. And I call on all of you to do that today. Look at Luke 16. Luke 16, let's find another loser in the Word of God. You know, in in preparing for this and in reading Scripture, I soon came to the place where I said, I better start looking for the winners that he saved. Because everyone that he saved the New Testament is a loser. There's hardly any winners. These are not the exceptions. This is the rule. There were very few Nicodemuses, if Nicodemus was a winner. There were very few Joseph of Arimathea's, who may have been a winner because he was a rich man. You know, he had some of the things of this world, but he was an exception. He was an exception. In Luke 16, let me ask you. It says in verse 20, there was a certain beggar. Do we need to go any further to prove that he was a loser? And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate. Why couldn't he walk there? Why was he laid at his gate? Crippled. We have a crippled beggar, full of sores, leprosy, some other horrible disease, running sores. How do I know that they were running? Because the next verse and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. So what kind of condition was he in relative to hunger? Starving. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, I didn't give this story. I didn't describe this event. Jesus of Nazareth did. Are there people like this in the world? Yes, there are. This man was a crippled beggar with running sores who was starving to death and couldn't walk. And he was just lusting after a few crumbs from the rich man's table. Did Jesus come for losers? It came to pass that the beggar died. Now, what kind of a funeral did he get? He was taken out to the city's dump heap, his body was, and it was thrown in a trash heap and burned up, probably. Or buried in a cheap hole in the ground. But was there more going on to his funeral that was beyond the sight of the eyes? 
the chariots of God descended. And if Elisha were there, he would say that they were the horsemen of Israel. You can go read about them in 2 Kings chapter 2 when they came and took Elijah out of his presence. Swing low, sweet chariot. And it did swing low, and it swang low. For Lazarus, the beggar, crippled, starving, with running sores, it swang low for him. And it stopped at the gate of the rich man's house, but it went no further, and they picked up Lazarus in his soul and his spirit and put them in that chariot of fire and delivered him into the presence of God. And you ought to get a few goosebumps thinking about Lazarus being put in that chariot and wheeled into heaven. I'm going to tell you that was one glorious funeral procession. They didn't need flashing headlights because they were all afire and aflame and were darting through this universe faster than any comet has ever moved into the presence of God. And I like those people, those Christian folk, those black Americans who came up with that little song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, because there were many times where that's all they had to lay hope of when they were in the holds of ships being brought over from their continent to ours. They didn't ask to come. I want to see Lazarus. And the rich man died, and he was buried. You know, he got a he got one glorious funeral. Man, there was a crowd around him. They wrote in the newspaper about the thousands of people that came to his funeral. I want to tell you about the thousands that were at Lazarus's. All the angels of heaven, and do you know how they're numbered? 10,000 times 10,000. And since you can't count any higher than that, thousands of thousands. That's how it's described in the word of God. And they were all celebrating and shouting and singing with a noise that sounded like the noise of many waters. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 5. And he was received into glory. And I don't care how many showed up at this funeral. This man, soul, went down to hell. And in hell he lifted up his eyes. He had his heaven here. And his hell then. And Lazarus had his hell in this life. And if you feel like your life has been hell, you're in good company. Look up. Your redemption draweth nigh. Do you hear me? Does anyone hear me? This is the truth of God's word. Jesus came for those that have a hell in this world, and he'll save them from it. Magdalena is not with us this morning, but I love her name because her name reminds me of Mary Magdalene. And I like Mary Magdalene very much. Jesus cast seven devils out of Mary Magdalene. She was a devil-possessed woman. Was she a loser the rest of her life? She was a winner. She followed Jesus wherever he went and did anything she could for him. On her one day off between the two Sabbath days while he was in the ground, what was she doing? Grieving with the disciples hidden away in an upper room? Or was she in the marketplace buying a hundred pounds of spices and preparing them so that on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, she has got up at three o'clock in the morning and got her hundred pounds of spices and made her way out to the garden of Gethsemane to find that tomb because she had waited there and watched where they put him so that she would know exactly where that body was and she was going to come and anoint it again. That's Mary Magdalene. But she, there were seven devils cast out of her. She was a loser. Jesus made her a winner. Can you come to Jesus Christ like Mary Magdalene? Do you know who Jesus Christ appeared to first of all after his resurrection? Before anyone else? 
Now, we may not believe that women ought to be bishops and deacons because of what the Bible says, but that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love women. In Jesus Christ, there isn't male nor female. And he didn't appear to John, and he didn't appear to James, and he didn't appear to his mother Mary. He appeared to Mary Magdalene first of all, and the Bible wants us to know that. And not only did he appear to her, I hope some of you might have read John 20, he played with her. He played with her in the garden. He withheld himself from her view so that she couldn't recognize him. And he looked like the gardener. And she poured out her soul that she didn't know where that he was laid, that he was missing. And where, where have you taken his body and put him? Will you help me find him? And he says one word to her. He calls her name, Mary. And she had heard that so many times before, and she knew it was her Lord. And he opened her heart to know that it was him. First one of all, Mary Magdalene, Jesus loves losers. How f Is it going to be hard for you to qualify as a Mary Magdalene? Isn't that wonderful? The Bible's full of it. This is a message. There are some that have a message of a social gospel for people who are poor like poverty is a virtue. I have a message for those that are spiritually poor and it's unbelievably good. Jesus came into the world for losers. And if you can just go to him as a loser, he will receive you in loving arms and embrace you in those arms. And there are 10,000 charms there. If you can't read John 20 and taste the charms, you have a problem. Go read John 20 verses 1 through 18 about Mary Magdalene and see if you can't feel the charms of hearing your name called by the Son of God who appears first to you and you're going to hear your name someday. Your name is going to be read out. And that son of God is going to come forward in, your, in an hour of need that I cannot describe to you. And that you cannot imagine. And he is going to address you by name that you're his. He's known your name since before the world began. That's a long time. He doesn't need to look it up in the book of life. It's in his palms. He wrote it down. Where can I go from Mary Magdalene? Do we think about Zacchaeus? Was he a loser? He was so short, he couldn't even see Jesus in a crowd. He was so pitifully short, he had to climb a tree and hide up there in the leaves. What did the crowd think of Zacchaeus? He was a publican. Was he a poor publican or a rich publican? A rich one. How did he get rich? He had cheated all his fellow countrymen. They hated him. And he's hiding up there in the leaves of that tree. He's a loser. He's a thief. He's an extortioner. He's a publican. He has betrayed his nation. But he had enough interest in Jesus Christ to climb the tree. If he could just see Jesus. Are you with me? He didn't bring all his money to Jesus. He didn't spread a big feast for him. He's up in a tree. And the Lord Jesus, our Savior, walking down that street by himself with nothing to do? Or were there thousands pressing upon him all around him? Amen. He stops. Do you love it? Do you love the word of God? Do you love every word of the word of God? Every verse of it? He stops and he looks up into that tree 
where that man would have been hidden from the public spectacle that he obviously was making of himself. And Jesus says, what did he say? What is your name? Let's Luke 19. I want you to see it. Luke 19. Luke 19 and verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. Out of all those people, he said, Zacchaeus, get down here, because I'm going to your house today, ignoring all those around him for the Zacchaeus in the tree. And as Zacchaeus is whipping down from that tree, what's the crowd doing? They're murmuring. When they saw it, verse 7, the crowd, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. Now, there's no murmuring in this church against anyone. But sometimes the devil will throw a dart at you, saying that there are people that murmur against you because they all know you're a loser. Let them murmur in your false imagination. That's a fairy dart of the devil. Hold up your shield of faith, which, faith, which is... Who cares who's murmuring as long as Jesus Christ says, I want to go to your house today for dinner. Who cares who's murmuring? And so Zacchaeus, he made a few things right, right here on the spot, which is what we want to do when we know that we're forgiven of all our sins. And Jesus went home with Zacchaeus. He was a loser, and Jesus found him in that tree. What What kind of men did Jesus choose to be his apostles? Were they the rich and famous of Israel? Were they well-educated? Were they impetuous? Rough men? Those are fishermen? Fishermen. Did you go to school to be a fisherman back in those days? That was a lowly job. He chose fishermen. He just walks along the seashore and, come follow me. Andrew, Peter, James, John. Adds in a couple publicans that we're told about. What kind of men did Jesus choose? Jesus came for losers. Look at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We can't forget this man. I know that my brother wants to meet this one when he gets to heaven. We all know that we're going to heaven for one person. You all know that. You all understand me when I say this, don't you? We are going to be a congregation up there. We are going to love each other in heaven. But there's only going to be one person that we set all our affection on and our worshiping, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But it will be wonderful to worship the Lord Jesus Christ with the spirits of other just men made perfect, and we will have our bodies then. We're already brought into unity with them. They're up there worshiping Him today. Mark chapter 1. I want to start in Mark chapter chapter 5 is where I want to go. Mark chapter 5. Now this is a loser. But I want to tell you how much Jesus Christ loves losers. I want to start in chapter 4. And I want to start at verse 35. And the same day, when the even was come, he saith unto them, that is to his disciples, as verse 34 tells us, let us pass over unto the other side. Let's get a ship and let's go across this sea. I don't want to be here. We need to go someplace. And when they had sent away the what? The multitude. They sent away a multitude that were with him. 
He takes the 12, he gets in a ship, and he crosses the sea. Why didn't he want to be there with the multitude? Because he had a loser that he had to seek out and to save. Brethren, would you get ex- can you get excited in your souls? He left a multitude. You know, sometimes you may feel like you're lost. Just one soul, just little old me. Jesus has multitudes that he has to take care of. Yes, he does. But he leaves those multitudes and he gets in a ship and he passes over the sea to find one loser. One. Follow with me. Mark chapter 5. And they came over to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Well, I guess that ship landed at the right spot, didn't it? Right there by a cemetery. And a man comes out of the cemetery, out of the tombs, with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. He lived in the cemetery. And no man could bind him. No, not with chains. Because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains. And the chains had been plucked asunder by him. And the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. Is that a loser? Mm -hmm. That is a loser. Always, day and night, crying and cutting himself, couldn't be bound, couldn't be tamed, living in a cemetery, and as the other gospel accounts tell us, naked and not in his right mind. And when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, the devils that were inside him, and cried with a loud voice, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. These are the devils speaking. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away, out of the country. The reason we're running between a singular pronoun and a plural pronoun, he's got plural devils and they're expressing themselves through one man's vocal cords. So it sounds like the man talking. It is the man talking with his mouth, but it's a, it's a legion of devils speaking. Now there was, you know all about the swine. I don't need to read that again. And those that kept the swine went into the city and said, we just lost 2,000 swine. And so they went running out there because that's a pretty big capital loss. They ran out there and they find, here's what they found. Verse 15, they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Sitting, not running. Sitting, clothed, not naked. And in his right mind, not crazy. He wasn't bound. He was sitting there passively. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil. They told him that Jesus had saved him. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coast. Isn't that pitiful? They should have been celebrating. They should have been celebrating that this wild Gadarene had been saved by Jesus Christ. And this man wants to go with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you go back into Decapolis and tell them what great things God has done for you. And he went back and published it everywhere. Look at verse 20. It says, He departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. 
Then Jesus went back across the sea. And when he got back across the sea, there was much people gathered to him. So there was the multitude back. Do you, love, do you like this little excursion that Jesus took? A little excursion for one loser. He had a multitude, he left them to find that one loser. Is that truly leaving the 90 and 9 and going after the one sheep? A wild sheep. That he, and he put him in his right mind. Are you worse than the Gadarene? Can you run to Jesus and just say, Lord, have mercy upon me? That's all he wants to hear. And he will, and he'll lift us up. Uh, we could go on forever. I already have almost. I could go on forever. You'll see when you look at the outline. You say, but there were men in the Bible that I just can't measure up against. I mean, I just can't measure up against a David. Really? You want to find out what kind of a loser David was? Here's what David would say about himself by inspiration. When the Lord found me, I was out taking care of sheep with the sheep coats. That's what the Psalms tell us about David. He was so insignificant that his brothers and his father forgot that he existed. Do you remember? When Samuel came to anoint the next king, they lined up seven brothers of Jesse, and Jesse's standing there rubbing his hands. Oh, one of my sons is going to be king. And they worked down from number one to number seven, and Samuel says, no way. No, no. And they get to number seven, and they're all, well, what was this trip for? And Samuel says, are you sure you don't have any more? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. We've got little David. Well, go get him. The Lord sent me here for your sons. So in comes David, a ruddy-looking little kid. We don't know how old he was, so don't ask me. But he was young. And he was young enough to be ignored by his big brothers. Now, any of you that are the last children in a family, do you sometimes feel insignificant? I want you to think right now. There were eight brothers. If you're the last of eight brothers, you're never going to get any attention, are you? I wish I could look up every one of you, but I'm trying. You feel like you're the last one? The Lord takes attention of you. <laughs> Who do you want? Your father and your brothers taking attention of you or the Lord taking attention of you? I want to tell you which son of Jesse became the king of Israel. It was David, number eight. What did that man do in his lifetime? Did he cost the life of 70,000 Israelites by numbering Israel? Yeah. Did he cost the life of Uzzah by moving the Ark of the Covenant the wrong way? Yeah. Did he take the life of Uriah the Hittite? Yeah. Did he commit adultery? Yeah. Was his family a disaster? Amen. Did one son rape, another, rape a sister? Mm -hmm. Did two sons commit sedition against him? Yep. Did his son that he put in the throne turn against the God of Israel and worship Molech and get obsessive with polygamy till he had a thousand wives? Did his grandson Rehoboam split the nation and lose ten tribes? Now, do you want to read that family tree and think that you can't measure up against David? Do you want to know what he had to say in his deathbed? Listen to his words. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of the Lord. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure and this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. That is precious. And that is one that you would think is maybe the highest one in the Bible. And that is David. And David in his deathbed had to admit that he was a loser. 
and his family was a loser. Although my house be not so with God. When you read the genealogy of our precious Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, there are four women. Why are those women in the genealogy? Why doesn't it give anybody else's wife? Do you know what women they were? Who was the first woman in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ? Tamar. Did she seduce her father-in-law for the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Did she? Yes, she did. Who's next? Rahab. What was her profession? A harlot. She was a prostitute. Rahab. It's precious. Mercy and truth have met together and righteousness and peace have kissed right in the genealogy, the family tree of our Lord Jesus Christ. Third woman, Ruth, a Moabitess. What were the Moabites known for? After they hired Balaam, and Balaam could not curse them because God wouldn't let them, Balaam taught the Moabites how to send their women into Israel to commit whoredom, to steal the hearts of Israel away from their God by fornication. She was a Moabitess. Ruth, who was the fourth woman? Bathsheba, adultery. With a dead child in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Those are the four women mentioned. Are we just supposed to blow past those names? Or are we supposed to see in there that any woman can come to Jesus Christ and find full and free forgiveness? Wonderful. That's sweet. That is sweet, and they've kissed together in, our, in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's many applications of this that I want to make, but I'm not going to make them this morning because I will cheat them all. So I want to leave you with just a couple. You had better believe that you're forgiven. How in the world do you not think that you can be forgiven? The Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive us. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But I've told you something more than that this morning. He's not just faithful and just. He loves losers. So there ought to be another measure of comfort in addition to his faithfulness and his justice. He loves losers. If you can come to him like the thief on the cross, like a Mary Magdalene, or like a David, do you know how long David's prayer was? I have sinned against the Lord. That man's forgiven. Can you say that before the Lord? Don't measure yourself by the world's standards. He wants trophies of grace. And for him to have a trophy of grace in heaven that will reveal the full splendor of God's mercy, he has to dip very low. So don't try to make yourself high or worry that by the world's standards you're measured very low because those are the ones he's looking for because it exalts his grace. If you're important in this world, you would really have to check yourself carefully to be one of God's elect because he hasn't saved those. Not many mighty are called. You had better believe your position as a son of God and be thankful for it. Beloved, 
It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We are the son. Now are we the sons of God? And you should grab onto that position that we have in Jesus Christ and be thankful for it. Don't wallow in your sins. Jesus died for those sins. Run to him. Rejoice in the full and free forgiveness that we have, like Paul. Did Paul, if a, if a man ever had something to wallow about, it would be going into a church and knowing that there were relatives of those saints that he had killed. Do you remember when he tried to join the church at Jerusalem? They wouldn't even let him. If there was ever a man that wallowed in his past, it would have been Paul. But he didn't wallow in his past. The love of Christ constrained him, and he gave his life serving that Lord. And Jesus said, when he sat at a dinner table with Simon the Pharisee, and that woman was at his feet begging for forgiveness, he said to Simon, those that are forgiven much, love much. And let's if you think that you're a sinner, then show that you really think you're a sinner by out-loving the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the application of the lesson. Right. Don't tell us about your great sins. You're lying to us. You're full of pride. Show us your thankfulness for the forgiveness of many sins by out-loving us. That is the humility that runs to Christ. As Paul would say, the love of Christ constraineth me, because I thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And if one died for all, then they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him that lived and died for them. That makes perfectly good sense to me, does it to you? Amen. Let's apply this lesson that way. And we had better be as forgiving as Jesus Christ has been toward us. Do you know what Ephesians 4 tells us? Putting away all bitterness and malice. Let us be tender-hearted, loving, and forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We should be the epitomes of forgiveness because the great example of Jesus having forgiven us and having loved losers, we should love losers. And there's never going to be even the smell in the air of self-righteousness against a repenting sinner in this church, is there? That's why we go to the best restaurant we can find in town and celebrate the repentance of sinners. And there better never even be the smell in the air of that disgust or envy or jealousy or self-righteousness. Let's rejoice with the angels in heaven when sinners repent. Psalm 85 told us earlier this morning, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. He's going to speak peace to his people and let us not turn again to folly. Let's run to him today, every single one of us. Ask for the forgiveness of our sins. He'll freely forgive us. It doesn't take a two-hour prayer. And let's not turn again to our folly. Let's serve him with our whole hearts and our whole lives. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.